Hey, it's Jackie with the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast. It's February 14th, and I bet you already know what this means. We've got two holidays today. Which one do we choose? We have Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday. I mean, one is full of flowers and dinners and chocolate candy and loving words, and the other one is a day of repentance. Ash is on the forehead symbolizing sin and grief and brokenness. I find it fascinating that these two holidays converge at the very same time that we're going to talk about the story of Bathsheba. I chuckled to myself wondering if she were here, which holiday would she most identify? Because I would probably put her in the Valentine's Day category. Because, you know, we've heard about her steamy desire for David bathing up on that rooftop, trying to get his attention with her nakedness. Since the early church, fathers have painted her as a seductress or adulterous woman. But what if what's been said about her isn't true? Because that happens to us, doesn't it? Sometimes somebody at work or faith in our faith community family member says something that maligns us, our character. And for a variety of reasons, we can't do anything about it. I know it's happened to me. I suspect it's happened to you, too. And it's pretty hard to stand by and let our reputation take a hit, isn't it? I find solace in what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. He says, therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. So what Paul seems to be saying to us is that those things that have been done to harm us, those things that aren't true, that have misrepresented us, vilified us, Well, when Jesus comes, he's going to set that record straight. And I think if Bathsheba were with us today, she'd opt for Ash Wednesday instead of a Valentine dinner because her story isn't one of love and romance. It's a story of power over dynamics. You can't say no to a king and live to tell about it. He took her home, her husband, and her body. This is an Ash Wednesday kind of story. And I'm grateful God chose to have it in our sacred text because this kind of stuff happens to us. Sin is done to us in all kinds of forms. And then often it's covered up to make it palatable for everybody. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. We're going to stop, take a moment, name it, grieve it, and reclaim those stories. We start this Ash Wednesday talking about Bathsheba. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. here with Laura Terrell and Melissa Duncan as we continue to talk about the women in the line of Jesus. Today's story is about Bathsheba, but before we get to her, I'm kind of curious, how has you guys' church handled the conversation, the teaching around these women? I mean, it's a bit unusual. So what are they saying? It's been good. I mean, I think that, um, Overall, it's been really good. The, the things that I've heard specific um, to the different women have been pieces of we haven't heard, you know, these stories taught this way. And this last week we did, we had a guest preacher come and talk about Ruth. And one of the things that she pointed out is that in Deuteronomy, God says that a Moabite won't be allowed into the assembly of worshipers, Yahweh worshipers. And then we have Ruth, a Moabite, joining the family of God, marrying into the Israelite nation and becoming the mother of, um, well, becoming part of the royal Davidic line. 
Um, so we were kind of t- wrestling with that. What do you do with that? On the one hand, God is saying, you know, the Moabites shouldn't be allowed into the assembly. And on the other hand, here is this Moabite woman who's absolutely becoming part of um, not just part of Israel, but part of the royal family and part of the line of Christ. Um, so that yeah, what, did you, I, what did you conclude? We all want to know. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, there are easy answers, but I think part of it was to say, what do we do when it seems like God is contradicting himself? Like, what do we do with that? Um, and also um, that, that God um, doesn't, doesn't always, you know, follow the rules in the way that we expect him to. I don't know. I don't know. But it, it definitely caused a stir. And people were like, I don't know what to do with this piece of information. Um, yeah. But it's not the only place in scripture where something like this happens. Well, um, no, I mean, even last time when we talked about Tamar, right, the idea that she lied and God seems to honor that. And we see the same thing in the Exodus story, right, with the two yeah. midwives. They lie yeah. to the authority, to their authority, right? And and God honors it. And yet there's scripture that says God doesn't lie, you know, and that we shouldn't lie. And so, right. you know, one of the questions I asked when I hosted a Bible study on that topic, not not a God lying, but about the women in Exodus, just what do we do? How, is there any wisdom versus legal, like acting legal, like seeing something as it's in stone and so it's certain or is or is god actually showing us that there's wisdom to be inserted in these kinds of everyday things yeah right see we want to see it as a dogmatic statement never ever 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 lie except if you're a christian or a human with any sense of heart during the you know holocaust and you hide jews is that okay to lie right. you know like So I think what God's even asking is for us to use the minds that he gave us for wisdom to be inserted into these situations instead of dogma. Anyway. Right. Well, got a little off on a rant there, didn't I? (laughs) But Jackie, I think that's something that like people are responding to, even as we've been telling these stories, because they're very embodied and they're very real. And we we can go through scripture and tell things in a very like overly spiritualized uh, fixated on like our future salvation and lose the fact that we live in these bodies. We make difficult choices every single day that aren't just black and white. And so I think uh, even as people have reacted to our sermons, it has been overwhelmingly positive because they're like, I, I didn't know all of the implications of how this was told because like these women were never told as real people, you know, they were props of this overall narrative. And so it just, it gives you space to have a faith that's embodied. And that's so, so important. And I think that's something that I'm hearing. Like you asked about feedback that we've been getting. Uh, That's, that's the heart of what a lot of we've been hearing, I think is just, these are real, like these are real women and they're and dealing tension. with complex issues that are yeah. not easily answered. There, there's, there's nuances all over the place, which exactly. is our reality, right? Yes. Um, and yet many of us have been raised in churches where it's just a matter of fact, everything's just either black or white up or down. Yes or no, except mm-hmm. our real lives aren't actually played out that way. And I taught on Sarah and Abraham one time, I actually was focusing on Sarah. And I was talking about how she gets given over to the Pharaoh by her husband, which had to be a a great disappointment on her part. Um, (laughs) Dude, you're saving yourself. But, but, but I have worked in places in in developing countries, third world countries where um, people have been left to make some decisions that were really hard. Um, And so I started seeing her story more from that lens of, well, what would I do if my whole family and all, my whole line of family was going to be wiped out? Would I be willing to hand over my body to another man to save my whole clan? I actually would. And I know women who have had to do that, you know? And so my conclusion was um, sometimes we are not faced with decisions that are good or bad choices. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's which of the shit will you go for, mm-hmm. the shit or shittier decision. 
right? Yeah. And there's wisdom and discernment that plays into that. And yes, I just said that word. But by the way, I know you all think it's swearing, but it, we all poop. It's okay. I'm also from New York and New Yorkers swearing is punctuation. So everybody just get over it. Okay. Because sometimes those words have to be used in order for us to understand, you know, like I have a woman I sat with in Africa who her, they extremely poor, um, a man came to her and said, I want to have sex with your daughter. The daughter was like 10 years old. I will pay for her schooling and her college. Now, this woman knows that if her daughter doesn't get educated, she will end up exactly where this mother is. That's not, that's a decision between shit and shittier. And a lot of people have to make those choices, right? So I think in these what you're showing with these women's stories that you're hearing is the complexities of their stories represent the complexity of ours and simple answers um, aren't, aren't always there yeah. or apply. Yeah. So I love that. So you had um, this week, uh, we're talking about Bathsheba and yeah. I suspect that like me, I'm, a, I'm older than you guys, but you know, 30 years ago when I heard her story, it was like, um, she was like an afterthought. She was a part of a story, a very, very tiny part of the story. Actually, it was all about David. And then the other character that was in that story of Bathsheba and David was, was Bathsheba's husband. Like there was a lot about David shouldn't have been home and he should have been doing this. And then he killed the man, her husband. And oh my gosh, what, you know, and even God forgave David and David has a heart, you know, like, so the whole focus of that story was, was on David mm-hmm. and no conversation whatsoever about this woman and what it might have been like for her. Um, and, and it isn't really until the last five years that we've started to have a new way of looking at the story of Bathsheba. And I know, Laura, like you took her on and I'd I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think I'm going to turn this one over to Melissa because she's preaching it this Sunday. (laughs) Um, But I do, I think it was Sandra Glahn's Vindicating the Vixens, that book. Um, She edited it and there's a lot of contributors. But I think when I read the chapter in there on Bathsheba, for me, it was one of the first times I'd ever paused to think about her story. Beyond being, yeah, beyond being a prop to David's story. Right. Um, and it's it's very illuminating once you start digging in. And again, it wildly reframes what's happening in this account. So, but I'm going to let Melissa talk about it because so, I know she's been doing the deep dive. So you agree though that you, um, that was what, four years ago that that book came yeah. out? Five? Yeah. First Not time long you ago. Also, right, right, yeah. right. So Again, 30 years ago, we weren't talking about her. And if we were, she was just a prop. Now we're starting to hear a different story, right? Yeah. yeah. So I'm sure that our listeners are going, uh, well, that's all I know about her. So let's <laughs> tell us a little bit about her. That, yeah. Like maybe our listeners need to know. Oh, well, you know, I'm actually, I'm really excited to redeem her story uh, because I would say, um, a little bit younger than you guys. I grew up in kind of the height of the purity culture movement and I heard a lot about Bathsheba, but it was really highlighting her seduction of David and um, was used kind of within the purity culture movement. And she was an adulteress. I mean, she was the cause of David's downfall. David's, David's flying high. And if, she had not gotten in his way like she she was the only thing that like could bring down this man of god and so wow. um yeah i would say wow. <laughs> my i, I heard have nothing and you heard it was her fault oh <laughs> yes yeah. oh yeah so let's give her a fresh look i think though looking at her story now it's just our our understanding of consent and outside of the Me Too movement, it has just dramatically given us a new lens that we can look at Bathsheba um, because she, like, I would have seen her as in charge of taking David down and the way we understand her now is completely different. Uh, The whole story is told from David's 
perspective. Like it's told um, without her feelings, without what she was thinking. So you have to do a lot of work to kind of pull out what In that fact, she we does. don't have her words. She doesn't. We don't. But last week I said uh, 14,000 words spoken in the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, and Apocrypha. We don't have her words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to begin with, there's a couple key things that I think we know about her that aren't actually accurate. So the first is like, we think Bathsheba was bathing naked on top of her roof and maybe with some like desire to trap David. Um, Actually, David was the one on his roof (laughs) and (laughs) it doesn't ever say that she's on a roof. Um, She's probably in kind of a private courtyard. And um, so a little context on me, I actually spent two years living in North Africa and we lived in a community that did not have plumbing or water. Like bathing is a pretty communal thing. Like you uh, find spaces and ways to clean yourself as modestly as you can, but it's like widely accepted that it's on, if you stumble on someone, like it's on you to look away or not participate in that um, because bathing is either communal or it's done privately, but only semi-privately because they, they don't have bathrooms right, right, inside right, right. the way we, yep. Yep. we would have. Um, so we see David seeing her, seeking after her, and um, she's doing like a ritual purification. Like I think there's an aspect where like Bathsheba is following God's law. She is purifying herself after her period, the way she is supposed to. Um, And then David, uh, it's not even just like an instant, like this is not, David didn't like slip up. Like he didn't get drunk and, you know, whatever with the woman he was on a date with. Take an inappropriate look. He didn't get drunk and take an inappropriate look. (laughs) Right. He saw her. He asks about her and sends servants to go get her. Um, And the only, all like, all the verbs are like David acting. The only active verb that Bathsheba has is when she actually comes with, with the multiple servants who have been sent to bring her to the king. And so in our in our current understanding, we would understand this very clearly as rape. She has no power to consent. Like she has very little agency. David is the most, most powerful, powerful man in the world. In the world. In the chapters but leading up to this, it's like David has conquered this land. David has conquered this land. David has conquered this land. David's grown bored of war and no longer going with his military, and he's now conquering within huh. his land. Yeah. Um, also, Bathsheba's number nine uh, so far of the list of women who David has had some kind of sexual encounter with. Like, I don't. I didn't realize that before I was studying this. But even when he he starts asking his servants about her. They already know, like, what kind of man David is. There's already multiple women living in his palace. And they're, like, they identify her both by her father and by her husband to be, like, hey, maybe not this one. Maybe not. (laughs) (laughs) And he doesn't listen. And so it's just, it's it's really pretty wild. Actually, so I love that you say that because I've never thought about that. but, But he does. She is identified by the men in her life right? Which are the ones who have authority over her. Mm-hmm. They actually have legality over her. They, they are her agency. Um, if, if he wants to have anything to do with her, they actually have to go through, he has to go through those two men, those two authorities, right? The violation in the Old Testament of rape is against the father yes, because she's property and you have ruined his property, 
And so that's why the penalty for raping a woman, a, a daughter of somebody else, you had to pay the father for it, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, the fact that that's mentioned is really strong. They're saying, hey, dude, there's there's two men. You you can't blow through both men. You you This is a stopgap, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and, and he disregards it as if it's nothing. Never even thought mm -hmm. about that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that's, I love that you bring up that frame because I think that's a, a really hard thing for us to understand the passage is she's only ever understood through culturally how they would understand women. So, like, the sin is never described as against Bathsheba. Like, right. we know that it is, but yeah. scripture doesn't say that it is. It feels like maybe God doesn't understand that it is. And that's yeah. really confusing and hard and even later when scripture describes like losing their child when David and Bathsheba have a child out of this that that is punishment for David and you you don't you don't hear about Bathsheba the mother like you hear about Bathsheba as wife of Uriah or you know and she's really unnamed and not considered as a full, full being in this passage. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. And and that's very indicative of that culture, right? It, it was a, a patriarchal culture. And, um, you know, patriarchy is where there's a hierarchy of some men are at the top and they are over all the women, children, and actually other men. Right, of mm -hmm. lower socioeconomic yeah. class. And and there's a power dynamics here that I think we're now understanding when we hear this story that we're now like coming and reading back into the story. Mm -hmm. Does a person have the freedom to say no thank you right. to a king? And I don't even know what the analogy <laughs> would be here, right? Like, but I, I think we saw a little bit of it um with Harry Weinstein, right? Like yeah. he controlled the keys to your ability to do certain things in that, in that um, industry. Yeah. And if you didn't go with what he wanted, he could blackball you. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. And so, I mean, that's on a very, I think even a much minor scale uh, compared to what we're talking about when we're talking about a woman in that culture and the King, mm -hmm. did she really have any choice? Did she? I mean, no. My answer would be no. Now that I understand mm -hmm. power dynamics, mm -hmm. now that I understand agency, lack of agency, socioeconomics, um, male, female. Mm -hmm. I, I think about this too, um, because my husband's a firefighter. We live in the town where he works. And Bathsheba's husband is off at war. Like he's in a precarious position. And the king's men show up at her door. And I've, I mean... I'm a firefighter's wife. I've thought about this. Like if firefighters were to show up at my door, I have one thought in my head that something's right. happened to my husband. And so when the King's men show up at her door, I don't think she's stopping to go, Hey, what's, you know, do you guys want some tea? You want some, you know what I mean? She's, she is headed to find out whatever she needs to find out. And it's, it's not, um, she imagines that she knows. And they summon her to the king. I don't think she's stopping to ask questions. Um, she's this you don't is think her. She said, "Wait a minute. I think David wants me. Let me go get my best dress. I need to shave my legs. Change, we change my underwear. Out. No, <laughs> she is. She is. You know, going to see her husband's boss about something that she probably assumes has happened to her husband. At least that's yeah. the way that I've thought about it. Um, I love so that. She's I've never considered that. That that she, of course, is thinking." Oh my God, my husband's hurt. My husband's dead. I'm about to receive some devastating news. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I don't, like the power differential, David is the king. Her husband works for him. And so when the king summons you, you go um, to find out whatever it is you need to find out. I, I The image or the thought that she is somehow tempting him and trying to trap him. I mean, I just don't see it in the text anywhere. Um, I think Bathsheba is at home minding her own business, being a faithful woman, um, and and David is up to his own shenanigans. She is not like the agent in this story. She's the person being acted upon. So let's let's talk a little bit about that. Why do you think? What's what's in our background 
as a Christian community that we would come up with the interpretation that she was the one luring David. How, how did we get there? Just a tiny okay. little question. So this is <laughs> this is not at all an answer to that question, but it immediately makes me think there was some, I don't even remember who it was, some prominent evangelical leader, male leader recently, like in the last couple of years, talking about how he was sitting at a stoplight in his car and he looked over at the next car and there was this beautiful woman in the car at a stoplight over at him and smiled and he said when he was writing or talking about this that he immediately knew that if he had followed her in his car like after the light turned green followed her wherever she was going he could have had his way with her and I'm like what is wrong with you this poor woman is in her car minding her own business waiting for the stoplight to change she accidentally locked eyes with you in that awkward way we do sometimes when we're at a stoplight and she smiled (laughs) You know what I mean? Like that was not a sexual invitation. So I, I don't, I, I just don't know how we've gotten to this place where that's the assumption because that's, that's, that's how we read Bathsheba is somehow she's in her home minding her business. And we've turned that into she's tempting David, which she absolutely was not. Right. Yeah. We've got issues. Yeah. We go ahead. Melissa, I was going to say the thing is like it's not only harmful to women; it's so undignifying to men to like that we're at this place where we can say like, yeah, you can be in control of an army, an organization, a kingdom, but like, look out, there might be a woman at a stoplight, <laughs> and you don't have agency there. Like David didn't have agency against Bathsheba. Like it should be good news to people, to men that like the Bible held David accountable for his actions. Like, but we, we somehow are in this place where like we misunderstand women. And we also think that men like can't, can't be themselves. Yeah. 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 I just think that's bizarre. I mean, I think to myself, as I tell people, um, you know, men are made in the image of Christ, image of Christ, just like women are. And, um, and Paul says that if you, uh, have the spirit in you, you know, if you've professed faith, you have the spirit in you and you therefore can have the mind of Christ. It says the yeah. mind of Christ, Yeah, you know? Um, and then we have the fruit of the spirit. Like that's not something that's just given to women. And so it's like, no, no, no. What, what, you know, like, I, I feel like we've lowered the bar so low, like yeah. that our poor brothers yeah. have like nailed it. Like they've gotten, Oh, y'all think we're this low. I guess that's what we really are. And I'm like, no, that's not who you are. You know, one time I had this guy come into my husband's office and he was talking to me and he was telling me he got divorced and blah, blah, blah. And he has this 16-year-old daughter. And then jokingly, he said, I'm never going to let her out of the house because you know what men are like, don't you? And I said, well, no. What are men like? And he starts telling me how, you know, the men are just lusting after women all the time. And da, da, da. And I said to him, I don't know why I did this. I'd never met him before. And I said, are you a Christian? And he goes, well, I am. And I kind of sensed he was. And so I said, well, then, you know what? I don't know what you're talking about because you're talking about yourself like you're an animal. I said, and you're not. You're made in the image of Christ. You have mm-hmm. the spirit that lives in you. You can have the mind of Christ. And I'm just not willing to lower the bar that far for you. And yeah. he just looked at me like, whoa, like. This is why nobody wants to be around Jackie. But I was like, what the hell are you saying, dude? Do you hear what you are saying? You know? Um, So it's not, it's, you know, it's always interesting. Don't get raped. Well, how about just don't rape? Mm -hmm. How about that? You know, like, let's just say that. Um, So (laughs) it's an interesting, I I think we need to ask, you know, where did the story come from? Mm-hmm. And how have we developed a story that women are tempestuous to men? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, I think about, uh, I think it was Thomas Aquinas who actually said that, and I won't get the exact verbiage right, I'm paraphrasing, but he said basically that women um, can't control themselves, they're animalistic sexually, and that men just want to reason. And that actually was, <laughs> I know, that was, a, that actually was the thinking about male, female up until maybe mid part of the century, right? Like, Hmm. so it's switched now. Now we say men are animalistic and women are logical and not interested in sex and all that stuff. But for probably half the life of the church, the thinking was that women were just more 
animalistic, you know, they didn't have good intellect. And so therefore they were just emotionally run and lustful and all of those things. Um, and, and men wanted were logical and reasonable. And, and I think some of that is still in our churches yeah. from those early, early. And I keep arguing that we need to have a better narrative than danger romance, as if that's the only narrative that we have about male and female. Yeah. Paul talks about brothers and sisters in the New Testament 122 times, more than any other time referencing the scriptures about the church. He calls yeah. us brothers and sisters. And he's expecting his audience to understand what antiquity taught and understood mm -hmm. about the brother-sister relationship. It was the strongest bond in antiquity. Yeah. And there were obligations there, you know. So we we somehow have forgotten that danger romance is not the narrative of scripture. Yeah. It's not God's narrative. Yes. yes. That's something it's so good because I um I have a friend, if we were just talking about this, like, he was just like, I don't, I don't know how, um, how we can like overcome this or understand this. And I was like, Christians of all people, like we have this language of brothers and sisters. Like we get to not exploit each other. We get to have like an additional, uh, relationship that, that maybe people who aren't believers can't understand. Like, this is the beauty of the gospel that God restores. And so we've like totally lost it somehow. Totally lost it. We've lost it. All all in the all in the danger narrative of the only way we can relate to a woman is to hold her at way at way at bar because we're gonna have sex with her otherwise, right? <laughs> like it's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. How do you think? Um, so my understanding is Melissa, you're teaching this Sunday. Yes. Coming up, right? Mm -hmm. How so you know, I think it's one in four in your audience will have experience some kind of sexual exploitation, if not rape. Mm -hmm. um, so I've taught these stories before in scripture. H how do you prepare your audience for this? And what do yeah. you expect to be the fallout, if you will? Or the, when I say fallout, like what kind of backing up are you going to have to do after it's over to say, you know, let's minister to people who this like broke open something for them. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you asked that. It's, it's such a delicate balance because I think there is a huge pastoral need for men and women, both who have been traumatized and experienced sexual violence to have these stories preached. Like they need to be out in the open air so that we build frameworks and, and bear witness to the stuff that has happened. But at the same time, there's like, such an ability to re-traumatize to re -traumatize and trigger people and do more harm. And especially depending where, where folks are at in their stage of the healing process. And uh, we haven't added nuance of we are an intergenerational congregation. Um, so my seven-year-old daughter sits in with us too. And so as I preach, I'm mindful of, how do I shepherd her about a world that I don't even want her to know exists and hope won't exist in the same way for her? And then for others who have experienced in very real ways. Um, and so I think that, um, and Laura can speak to this too, we've tried to hold it really carefully. We've kind of given some um, a heads up on the nature of some of the content that we'll be talking about um, and or even reach out to people individually too, just to be like, Hey, just so you know, this is, this is coming and, and um, just so you're aware <laughs> and we want people to be cared for. Um, that's more important than um, in my mind than just exposing, you know, David for, yeah, the story. Um, but I want to be truthful too. And right, so it's, right. it's just, I, I'm, I mean, I'm preaching on Sunday, so I'm still working through some <laughs> of, you know, how do I want to say this and what, what words can I use? Because I don't want to contribute to the culture of silence that we have right. and the, the culture of shame <laughs> where like the things that happen to women's bodies are shameful and shouldn't be talked about. Um, I don't want to perpetuate that. And so 
Um, so I, you are both seasoned. Maybe you have <laughs> even <laughs> strategic advice for me and how we do um, the preaching and the shepherding work well. Yeah, I'd love to hear what you're thinking, Laura, about that. Yeah, I think... There, all of this, I think, is important work. It's the important sort of shepherding work that we do as pastors. So I think teaching on it is important. Using careful language is important. But I think also saying as a community, we're going to acknowledge and grieve this together. Like we are grieved that this is a reality in scripture and that it's a reality in some of our lives. Like that breaks our hearts. It breaks God's heart. Um and we don't want to move too quickly past it. I think right. to say to people like, um, we don't believe that Bathsheba was a temptress. We believe that she was forced to do something that she did not want to do. Um, and that there were dire consequences in everyone's life related to this story that are heartbreaking. And this, this is part of, uh, evil in our world like this is a representation of evil and um it is it is worth slowing down and sitting with that for a moment and grieving it but also um saying this is not this is not um this is not who god is and that god also allows consequences for this that are painful um it's that delicate balance because you want to point to hope, but you don't want to move so quickly to hope that you just spiritually bypass real hurt. Right, right. So, so I think that's interesting. It just made me realize I need I need to send you something, Melissa. When I've taught on these particular passages, I've actually used a a, a, a prayer of lament mm-hmm. that was written. I can't even remember who wrote it. Uh, doesn't matter. I didn't write it. It's profound, um, but it takes the congregation through a prayer of lament and it uses words like, Lord, we come to you, have mercy on all the women who have been victims in this world. And then the congregation says, we cry out for mercy. And then it goes to the next person. And it's just this, it's a way for the congregation to express lament when, yes, we want to leave with hope, but you don't get to hope without getting through lament. Right. Right. And there's, there's a place for crying out and saying, why God and how long, right? That's what lament is basically about. And so I think if you can give your congregation some tools to acknowledge the the lament of it and not expect them to move right to hope, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I know for me, when I've taught on rape or abortion or any of those topics that I know are going to include so many of the population in the congregation, I will almost always have either a counselor on staff or they are available or a small group that we are getting started that would cover like, Hey, we're offering starting next week, uh, you know, a, a domestic violence, a small mm. group to work through some of these things, or here's some counselors. Like, in other words, like here's where you go yeah. to continue to unravel this. If this has opened up something for you, yeah, right. That's we want to give them practical ways that they can continue in this journey of healing from that. Yeah. Um, you know, so that, that would be the one thing I would say is if there's anything and you don't have to be the one that offers it. If there's anybody, anything in your community that's being offered, you can yeah. say, this is happening in our community. Here's the number, blah, blah, blah. That's so good. practical resources for them to continue through that story of their own yeah. life that yeah. was traumatized. So, mm. so we talked a little bit about, I want to kind of bring us back to David and Bathsheba. We talked a little bit about where is God in this story? And I've heard both of you say like a little nugget of, well, David didn't get away with it. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Like what, what, uh, what, what, where did we see God move? Like if we could say anything, is God's hands completely off from this or is God present? God is very present. I think that through this, the story looks like David pulled pulled it off in secret. I mean, we didn't even touch on the murder of her husband and all of the ways he negotiated that, but um David like you think that he has managed managed it. He marries Bathsheba, he cleans everything up and um God sends a prophet his way to accuse him and 
refuses to let it remain silent, refuses to let this be hidden. And um, he comes to David and he almost uh, tricks him. Like he shares the story. He's like, it's come to my attention that there is someone who has acted unjustly. And he tells a parable about um, a poor man who had this tiny little lamb um, that he loved like a daughter, not, not a person, <laughs> but a, a lamb. Uh, and how that was taken by from him by by a rich and powerful neighbor, and David is outraged. Like he is like this this shouldn't be, and he basically condemns himself. And then the prophet says, "This is you. You're the one I'm talking about." Um, and so we see both that, and then we also um, see that God punishes David for his actions. Um, he he both uh, the way they understood it at least in the text is that um, David would lose his child because of it. Um, the text also brings punishment on David by saying like your family or you you will have wives who are <laughs> taken from you or are harmed because of it, which is adds more complexity even in how we um, understand the work of God in this. Um, because it's almost like Bathsheba, David's children, David's wives are all paying this cost for David's sin. Um, and isn't that the way it is, though? Mm-hmm. When you have people in great power who misuse their power, it's the most vulnerable that pays the, the biggest price for it. Isn't yeah. that actually how it plays out in real life? Yeah. Yeah. No surprise there. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Yeah, but it's hard. I mean, because it is, so God is there. God is not approving of this. And uh, for me, I've really struggled for a while of just like Bathsheba losing her child because we don't know, again, we don't get her voice in it. We don't know, like, I want to know how she felt. I want to know if she held that baby and was like, this is reminding me of this horrible rape, you know, or if she was like, this, this is another devastating loss, like that I lament and grieve. And um, I think as I've been studying it, I feel like, but God knows what it was to lose a child, you know, like God is present with Bathsheba in like the complete and utter brokenness of the world that takes the things most precious from us. And in that is still a promise of setting things right. And I think it's like Laura was saying where like, we want to skip ahead. Like we want to skip really quickly on to like, and then Bathsheba had three more sons or four more sons and one of them was King and everything was fine. But like, (laughs) (laughs) right. And that's what scripture does a little bit too, but like we have to also sit with her in the lament and and in imagine God present with her in that mm-hmm. space of lament and mourning mm-hmm. too. But it's it's not easy. It's a it's hard passage. It's a hard passage. It is. It is. I'm I'm mindful. I I taught something similar like this at a at a. I was visiting at a church and they wanted me to talk about a specific thing that had to do with rape. And I was like, geez, really? (laughs) And they invited me because I'm a woman. And so they wanted me to speak of it as a a perspective from in a, after I finished talking about it, a woman from the Philippines came up to me and she was probably in her seventies or eighties. And she was telling me the story that um, she was graduating high school and getting ready to go to Bible college. And in her dad had a friend who was like old. Um, so it was his dad's age, her dad's age. And he came over and he raped her mm. and she got pregnant and she didn't even know she was pregnant. And so she was like four or five months pregnant. And all of a sudden she realizes, Oh my God, I'm pregnant. I mean, she's just had no idea what had happened to her. Mm. And so she dropped out of school and married the man oh. because um, she, it was an honor shame culture, much yeah. like Bathsheba's culture and had the baby and she said her parents disowned her wow. for marrying an older man and leaving college so she never had a relationship with her parents 
ever since. She bore the shame that she put on her family by marrying someone and not getting educated and never told him why. And then she told me that she had this little girl and she just could never love her. Held her. She, she said it was just the most devastating thing. And finally this man passed away from old age and she was able to remarry and start to kind of take back her life that had been taken from her for like 40 years. Wow. This is in today's world, right? This right. is not antiquity. And I guess I, right. why I'm saying these things is these things happen all the time in our Absolutely. lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and we're made with shit and shittier choices, mm-hmm. right? Like, um, so I, I think one of the things that I want to point out before we close out just a little bit, I, I want to sit with this woman and ask her, you know, what, what do we want to say to her? But before we do that, I taught on Tamar, um, David's daughter. Mm. who was raped by Amnon, right? Which is David's oldest son. So firstborn son, very important, right? And what's fascinating about the rape of Tamar, so we have Dinah, which was Jacob's daughter, and we have Tamar and we have Bathsheba. We all have those three women raped in the text, in the scriptures. And uh, the only one that actually speaks is Tamar. Mm-hmm. The other two women, we have no no words. Their words are not recorded. And, and her speaking, the, the, the sentence we have from her is this one where she's demanding righteousness and justice yeah. from her brother, yeah. like mm-hmm. marry me, go ask dad to marry me because at least then I can remain pure in my culture and have some sense of honor. And he disregards her, of course. Yeah. And David finds out and he's angry, but he doesn't do anything about it. He's the king. He has moral, he has authority and moral obligation as king to perform, to to bring justice. And then as father of the family, secondary, like, so he's double loaded in his Mm -hmm. expectation of bringing justice to his daughter and he doesn't do a thing. Yeah. And I've always wondered to myself is one of the reasons David was silent is because of course, firstborn son had uh, privilege, right? You're not gonna, you're not gonna burn your firstborn son. He's not, you know, you don't want him to get in trouble. That's really important for his legacy. But David had also raped. So what was he gonna say to his son, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and so shame and shame and shame and like, well, I really can't call you out because I'm doing it myself, right? Yeah. Um, but interesting. And here's where I think the big payment comes. And I think this is the big warning to the church today. Hear me, brothers and sisters out there who run the church. Um. The first 10 chapters of 2 Samuel, we have David's uh, uh, ascent, right? Mm -hmm. His kingdom, it's building, he's winning, he's booming, he's climbing up the ladder, success, success, success. Second, the last 10 chapters of 2 Samuel is all his demise and his family's Mm -hmm. demise. Mm -hmm. And in the very middle, if we called it a, a chasm, which is like that Hebrew idea of the thing in the middle is the point God is making. So if we looked at that whole text, and I don't even know if you're allowed to do that in Hebrew, but I like the idea, so I'm going for it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, like if we look at the beginning and we look at the end, so we have success, success, success. We have decline, decline, decline. The whole family is in decline. In the middle, we have Nathan, the prophet. Yeah. And in the middle of that is these two stories of Bathsheba and Tamar. Yeah. And I think what God is saying by that whole picture being put together is take heed, church, take heed, countries that pay no attention to those who use their power to take advantage of the, mm. of the vulnerable. Take heed of what's yeah. going to happen to a society that ignores it, Yeah, that ignores justice and righteousness, especially towards those who have little agency. I think that's the big warning. And if we aren't listening, we're in deep trouble. And I don't think the church has heard it. We went through the whole church two movement. And we're still watching people drop like yep. flies. We're yep. still watching the church protect itself. And yep. I'm like, just read Second Samuel. Yep. <laughs> if we want to know why we might be in a decline, just read Second Samuel. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. Yeah, take heed. That's what I would say. There's a huge price to pay as families and as societies when we don't speak up and defend the, the things that have, are unrighteous and unjust in our societies. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about if we see her, when we see her. 
We'll get to know. We'll actually get to have. I mean, I think heaven's a very long time. New heavens is new earth. We're going to be around for a long time. You know, all these people I want to chat with, we're going to have hours and hours. That's why when I when I meet great people like Laura at seminary, I think, well, we may never get to hang out, but I've got eternity, and I plan to yeah. connect up with you. I'm paying attention to you. I I got it. I'm gonna I'm gonna find you when we get there. Um, what what would we want to say to her? Yeah, as what do we as we thank her for. Oh goodness. Well, as I'm I'm listening to this story, um I think I've been thinking about how we respond to David in this. And you know, we like to jump to Psalm 51 where David has this moment of repentance and we want to redeem him as quickly as possible. And we want to shift the blame away from David onto the woman. Like this is the way that we handle this story. Um but that doesn't yes. honor her. By the way, yeah. yes, yes, we do. Still in twenty twenty. Yes, we do. Yes, yes we do. And, <laughs> and I want to say to Bathsheba, like God, God saw all of that. God witnessed what happened to you. He mm-hmm. saw it. God was not absent. He saw it, and He cares about your pain in this story. He was with her when she lost her baby, through no fault of her own. Mm-hmm. Um, God, God saw all of those things and her pain matters and, uh, that we bear witness to that. And, and we haven't lost sight of that. And, you know, David paid a significant price. Um, David had to do his own work with God over this event and the repercussions in his family, but Bathsheba, um, had her own experience and connection to God. and. Um, while history may not have treated her kindly, I think her story is in scripture because there are people in our communities who need to know that God knows their story too, and that God was with them, and God witnessed what happened to them, and that God also values and treasures them and cares about their pain. I think that's why her story matters. Um, and. I think we have to do our own repentance from wanting to redeem David too quickly at the expense of Bathsheba. That's not honoring to her story. And so I would want to thank her uh, for being, um, for, for continuing on, for, for dealing with the junk that she was dealt. Um, And, and, I think later in the story, there's this moment where she goes to David because there's all kinds of, shenanigans happening in David's family. And it looks like her son Solomon is not going to get what David had promised her, which was that Solomon would be king. And so there's this moment where she goes to David. And I I imagine this required some courage and bravery and says to him, you promised, look, I have been through enough, but you promised me that this son would be king after you die. And I will not stand by and let you do this to him or let this happen to him. Like she puts herself out there on behalf of her son. Um, And so I think there is a sense where her story takes, there's that moment of agency um, where she is saying, I'm not, I'm not going to stand by and let this happen. I'm not going to be quiet. Yeah. I'm not going to be quiet. She slipped him an IO, you owe me, you know, I owe you. (laughs) No, by the way, you owe me. You owe me. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm calling in my chips here now. <laughs> Seriously. So I I think I am thankful that her story is in scripture, as painful as it is, because I think that there are people in our churches who need to hear her story and need to know that God was witness to those events. Yeah. 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 And that he didn't ignore it. That no. he was that he's seeing it. There are consequences for it. Even right. if we don't see it in the media, there things are happening. Yeah. What about you, Melissa? Kind of what Laura was saying there at the end, um, I would want to thank Bathsheba for her perseverance. And um, it sounds maybe funny, but she's not like one of the strong women in scripture, you know, and, um, you know, she's not Jael, like (laughs) driving a stake, you know, she's (laughs) not, we don't hear her voice. We don't really see like her like manipulating to survive. Um, And I think that like for a lot of women, um, 
the narratives of like the super strong, like overcomer is really intimidating. Like, Mm. um, you know, there's like, like Laura is a warrior, right? Like I, I am so happy to be in a room with her and just, she is not going to let any, anything fly if somebody is being hurt or whatever, like, there is such strength to you. Um, but not all women feel that right. like majority yeah. of women have that know exactly what that feeling is of like, what just happened? Like, even if it's not an assault story of like being yeah. overpowered on a regular basis and coming away from it and just being like, how, how did I get here? I didn't have any control in this. And, um, and so even the way that Bathsheba shows up later, like she's still, it's, you know, Nathan is supporting her and like encouraging her to go forward. She has conversations with Solomon where you're like, where even like, she's the most, she's now the most powerful woman in Israel. Like he puts a seat in his throne room for her. Um, men in power recognize her as being a woman in power but it's like unclear if she really even fully like can accept her own power and and she makes a clear choice that she is no longer going to let things just happen to her she's going to act on behalf of her survival and her family but it's still so complicated and I think that Bathsheba is just such a relatable real woman um, who persevered and didn't give up when awful things happened to her. Um, but also isn't this like Captain Marvel figure who you're like, well, great, but I, I don't have photon blasters that I can shoot out of my arm um, to dive into a totally different nerd <laughs> realm there. <laughs> but I think it it's like, she's relatable to yeah. the majority of women. And so I'm just yeah. grateful for her story being told in any capacity for yeah. us to understand. Yeah. I think to take it just to a whole nother shift is that the whole time I've been sitting here, I, I kind of want to thank her for reminding me what it means to hold the power I hold mm. um, as a white Western descent, privileged, educated woman. I mean, I know I'm a woman, but I am still second to a white male Western descent. I am second in line, right, of privilege. And I'm mindful that her story reminds me and she reminds me that I need to be really thinking a lot about how do I steward my power and am I in any way using that power in ways that actually are harmful to people who are more marginalized than I am. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I, and I'm thankful for that. Her story tells us that, right? Like this inability to have voice because of the power di- di- differentiation. And it's like, yeah, I, I, I really want to hold that. And I think part of her story that all of our congregations need to hear is, and what are we responsible for with our power and authority? Yeah. How yeah. are we holding that? Um, and are we using it in ways that God intends or are we abusing it? Um, yeah, so that would be the thing. And so, okay, we we have almost run out of time, but we've got to talk about next week. Next week, Laura, you're talking about home. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Yes. I know, I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm so excited. Give us a little teaser because I got to tell you, like, again, three seminary degrees in, 30 years into ministry, and never talked about Mary. The last yeah. six years of my life, maybe five or six, I have been chasing her all over the place, reading yes. everything I can get my hands on. And I'm like, what happened that I didn't get this woman's story except at yes. Christmas? Oh, my gosh. So There's so much. There's I love so much. Mary. I know. I know. <laughs> she is a firebrand. And, and we don't read her that way, which is unfortunate. So I have so many thoughts because like you, I've read so many books about Mary in the, just in the last two years. I mean, they're just coming out all over the place. But I think one of the things that I was thinking about even today is that Mary is like the patron saint of accepting um, being misunderstood and having being read as a scandalized woman when you are not a scandalized woman. 
And I was thinking about that today. I have a dear friend in ministry and um, she's just had a series of really difficult church assignments and she was coming to the end of one in the last year and we were talking about it. And she said to me something along the lines of, well, this is just another season of entering being misunderstood because she knew that the story that would be told about her would not actually represent her. Who she is. Yeah. Who she is. Oh, oh, I think our audience can really get into that one. How many of us out there have been misunderstood? Our story, what we were doing, what we are doing is being misunderstood. Oh, yeah, that that that's relatable for sure. Well, yeah. I, I want to thank both of you for being here again today, for doing this series. This has just been so fun. Can't wait to dive into Mary. And for those of you listening out there, I just want to thank you. I hope that this story about Bathsheba, I hope you'll go back, read it again and again and again, and I, and, and and maybe even ask the Spirit for some healing in your life through this mm-hmm. woman's testimony. So um, just thanks for being here with us, ladies. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. All right. See ya. Bye. Bye. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.